Amen. Well, I am excited this morning that we are starting a new series in the Gospel of Luke. So let me invite you to turn there. If you want to use a Bible in the pew in front of you, this is going to be on page 947. The Gospel of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. And I'm excited. I've, if you've been here a while, I preached through the Gospel of Mark, I think is the second series we did, starting probably in 2017 or so. Um, but it's been a while since we've just camped out in a gospel, seeing Jesus week after week. And so this is going to be a good series. I, I'm, did I say that I'm excited about it? All right, so this morning, let me just read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we start this series, I want you to imagine with me that you're getting ready for a movie night. Okay, so you're watching it with some friends or with your spouse, and the key is that they picked it out. Okay, so you don't know much about this movie. In fact, you just hear the title and you're kind of marginally interested, but you're like, all right, it's movie night. So you get your snacks ready, you get your favorite spot on the couch all picked out, get the blanket to cozy up. You're all settled in, and then you're, you're only kind of half paying attention. But then five little words flash across the screen as the movie is starting. Based on a true story. And suddenly, everything changes. Because when we see those words, something happens. Our heart skips a beat. Our attention is gripped a little bit tighter. Why is that? Because the story that we're about to see is true. It's real. It actually happened. See, there's something about true stories that captivate us and move us in ways that fictional stories simply can't. Because knowing that at some time in history, in some place in our world, these characters really lived and this story really unfolded, there's something about that that has a a power over us that mesmerizes us. And this morning, we begin a series in the Gospel of Luke. And what this book is, is it's telling a story. A story with unforgettable characters, with memorable lines, and a plot that would almost be unbelievable. Except, here at the very beginning, it's as though we see these words flash across the screen. But the words don't say merely based on a true story. The disclaimer as the gospel as Luke, of Luke opens says in big letters, what follows is a true story. All of it. Every word, every character, every scene. Luke has taken no creative license 
Instead, he's carefully labored to tell us the true story of Jesus. Now, this true story is it's not a, a short story. In fact, it's an epic tale. In fact, it's the longest book in the New Testament. With the book of Acts, it makes up a two-volume work written as a single unit. Together, when you put Luke and Acts side by side as one work, they make up over 27% of the New Testament, which means that the author, Luke, actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. You can file that away for your Bible trivia because you would think Paul, maybe John. No, it's Luke. This morning, we're going to be embarking on a journey through this book of Luke. We're going to be in it for a while. Don't ask me exactly how long because I don't know. The plan, though, is for us to work through it this spring. And then when we get to summer, we're going to take a break and resume our journey in the fall. So the question is, if we're going to be spending a lot of time in this book, why? Why spend so much time in this book? And I thought a lot about that over the last few weeks. And if I could sum it up in two words, they would be clarity and confidence. Luke's goal in writing this book is to make it clear who Jesus really is and what he's accomplished. We all know that there are many, many, many mistaken views about who Jesus is that float around, both in the world and sadly in the church. But we're not after a make-believe Jesus that we've created to be the way we want him, who fits into our little boxes. Instead, what we want to see and who we want to worship is the Jesus who really is. We want to know the Jesus who explodes our categories and who stops us in our tracks. The Jesus who both unsettles us and satisfies us. Who confronts us and comforts us. The Jesus who seeks us and saves us. We want to see this real Jesus with real clarity. And as we'll see this morning, Luke is committed to showing us him that way. That's the first reason. The second reason we're going through Luke is so that we might gain confidence in the real Jesus. And when I say confidence, I I have two audiences in mind here. First, for those who are here this morning, or those who will come because you invite them, who don't know Jesus, we want to hold up the Christ of Luke's gospel for doubters and skeptics To see that he really is trustworthy. He's not a myth made up to make people feel better. He's not a fairy tale designed to teach morals to kids. Jesus is the Christ. The long-awaited king who came to save God's people from sin and death and bring us into his kingdom of never-ending peace and never-fading joy. And we want to be able to hold him up so that as we invite those in our lives who don't know this Jesus, they can see and say, yes, he really is trustworthy. I do have a confidence in him. But secondly, the second group I hope to see gain confidence is those of us who already do trust him. Because if we're honest, our faith isn't always strong. In fact, some days it's very weak. It's fragile. It's constantly under attack, and at times it's stretched thin. 
our hearts are prone to doubt, to discouragement, and unbelief. And what every single one of us as followers of Jesus needs is to have our confidence in Jesus and the gospel deepened and strengthened. We need to see and remember who he is and what he's done for us. We need to hear the old story that Luke tells us again and again. I love how an old hymn says it. Listen to these words. It says, Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. And tell me the story always, if you really would be, in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. That's why we're going through Luke. Because we need to see Jesus over and over and over again to have our confidence in him and his love and his saving power strengthened. So at the outset of the series, let me just ask you this morning, do you ever find yourself living like Jesus is just a story, but not necessarily a true one? Do you need to re-encounter the real Jesus? Is your confidence in him and his heart toward you ever weak, ever feeble, ever fragile? If so, join us on this journey through Luke. Or do you know someone who doesn't trust this Jesus? Who doesn't have any confidence that he is who he says he is or can do what he says he can do? Invite them along on the journey. And every week, let's make our prayer what we just sang. Show us Christ. Reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. Now there's many, many other themes that are going to show up along our journey. I, I tried to boil them down. and Man, there's tons. But I just want to point out a few. Think of these as kind of attractions along the way. As we're on a journey, these are things to keep your eyes peeled for as we go. Say, oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is again. So here's what we want to look out for. First, Luke emphasizes that the good news of Jesus that he's telling us in this book is for everyone. Like the angels in Luke 2, he's going to be announcing good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That means it's good news for Gentiles. Like my guess is all of us in this room. Not just for Israel. In fact, over and over, Luke goes out of his way to show us God's unfolding plan to welcome in the nations. Maybe more than any other gospel, he's saying, look, look how the Gentiles are coming. Look how it's for the nations. But it's not just for all people in that sense. It's also good news for the lowly and the least. It's good news for sinners. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, will draw attention to how Jesus is a savior for sinners. He uses the word sinners more than all the other three gospels combined. 
He wants you to know if you're a sinner, and we all are, he says, Jesus is for you. (laughs) Not just that. He's good news for the outcasts, the rejects, the poor. He's good news for women who play such a prominent role in Luke's gospel in a time and place where they would not have had much social standing. It is a strange and extraordinary thing that Luke put so much focus on women during this time. No other works would highlight women the way Luke does. The point of all these, of all these emphases of the, Jew, the nations and women and the poor and the outcasts and sinners is that Jesus is bringing an upside-down kingdom where the lowly is lifted up where the poor are blessed, where the outcast is welcomed in, and where the sinner is made holy. So keep your eyes open for those kind of things. On top of that, no other gospel talks more about prayer. So we're going to see a lot of prayer. Or none other talks as much about the Holy Spirit. Or money. You're thinking, okay, prayer, Holy Spirit, I get where this is going. And then money. Hmm. That's going to be an interesting thing to see. How do those three perhaps go together? Then finally, one other thing to keep your eye out for in this book is the role of meals. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of course, Pastor Dan would draw attention to meals. It's not just me. In fact, in Luke 7.34, Jesus says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, when we think about the Son of Man coming, there's only three places that that language is used. And my guess is the other ones are popping into your mind. We read in Mark that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. Or we read in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Both of those are what he came to do. He came to seek and save the lost by giving his life as a ransom for many. But in Luke 7, we read how he came. What was his, part of his methodology? And part of it was he came eating and drinking. One commentator has even noted that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus practically eats his way through the gospel of Luke. And as we go, what Luke is doing is inviting us to see how Jesus welcomed sinners to his table so that we too will show hospitality and welcome sinners to our tables. So that's, that's some of the things, the sights we're going to see on this journey. Now, every good journey needs a map. So let me give you a map for the book of Luke. Luke. Here is the first, there it is. Um, There's at least six sections. You can break some of these down more. But to give you kind of an idea of where it goes, this morning, this is kind of an introduction. This is a prologue setting up what this book is. And then in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have the coming of the Son of Man. This is his birth being foretold and happening and his time as a child. And then in Chapter 3 through 4.13, you see the preparation for ministry. He's, he's getting ready. Things are being made ready for his ministry to take place. And then in 4.14, he begins. 
and places are very important in the book. Notice it says ministry in Galilee. Everything, there's a geography to the books of Luke and Acts. So everything in 414 to 950 is in Galilee. And then in 951, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And from 951 to 1927, everything that happens is on the road to Jerusalem. And then as we know, in 1928 through the end of the book, he's in Jerusalem where we see his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Okay, so that's, that's where our journey goes. That's the map. Now what about our guide? Who's our guide on this journey? Well, this gospel was written by a man named Luke. And to be honest, we don't know much about Luke. He's only mentioned by name in three verses in the New Testament. Here's what we do know from those three verses. One, he was a doctor. Two, he was a fellow worker with Paul and accompanied him on some of his journeys. Three, he sticks with Paul to the end, even when others abandon him. We see that in 2 Timothy. And fourth, most likely because of that, he's beloved. So, we've got a doctor, which means he's intelligent, values careful study, as well as a faithful partner in gospel ministry who's committed to the apostles' teaching which makes him a perfect choice to write this book on Jesus that's meant to clarify and give certainty as to who he is. Now this morning, we're just going to look briefly at his opening sentence. This prologue in verses 1 to 4 is important. See, when we look at books now, what we do if you're ever in a bookstore, I know everybody's like, I just buy it on Amazon. What's a bookstore? Well, if you ever are in a physical bookstore, you just pick up a book, you either flip it over to look at the back cover or some of the hardbacks, you, you open the inside and you see what is this book about and who is this author. It gives you that little blurb. But you got to remember they didn't have book covers back then, namely because they didn't have books back then. These were scrolls. So often what they would do, they would give the gist of what they were writing about in the first sentence so people could just unroll the scroll a tiny bit peek inside and get an idea of what this scroll was about. Like, oh, okay, this is not the one I was looking for. Oh, there it is, right? That's what Luke is doing here. He's telling us what this work is about. And as we look at this opening sentence, we're going to see four things about this story of Jesus that Luke tells us. So here's our outline for this morning. We're going to see that the story he tells us is a fascinating story, it's a real story, it's a reliable story, and therefore it's a story you can have confidence in. Okay, so let's jump in and look at verse 1. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Stop there. So the first thing we see is that Luke's book about Jesus isn't the first one. He's not claiming, like, I'm the first guy to write about Jesus. In fact, he says, many others have already written their own accounts of Jesus. Now, why would that be? Why would many have written these accounts about Jesus? Well, because he's incredibly fascinating. He said and did things that no one else has. And when people encountered him, their lives were never the same. Love him or hate him, the one thing people couldn't be about him was indifferent. He provoked a response. 
Either he really was the son of God and therefore Lord of everything, or he was the greatest fraud in history. But whatever he was, he was not boring. So many people wrote their own stories of his life. Notice that Luke calls it a narrative. They told the story of Jesus. Now many of those who wrote were people who'd been captivated by Jesus. They'd found in him a beauty, a love, a power, a satisfaction, a life that they could have never imagined. And they couldn't help but write about him. Say, I got to tell other people. So why write about Jesus? Because he's fascinating. He's intriguing. He's compelling. He's riveting. In fact, that's why people never stopped writing about him. In 1999, there was a CIA analyst by the name of Peter Dixon. And Peter Dixon, I don't know why he did this, but for whatever reason, he used his CIA skills of investigation to research who has been the subject of the most books in history. To do his search, keep in mind this is 1999, so the internet's still kind of in its infancy. To do his search, he used the Library of Congress, the world's largest library, containing 110 million volumes, which take up 532 miles of shelf space. That sounds awesome. <laughs> so guess what he found when he researched the Library of Congress? Not only was Jesus the most written about, there had been twice as many books written about him as the second place person. In case you're wondering, it was William Shakespeare. Now, that was 1999, so you're thinking, well, a lot's changed, and like you said, there was... Internet wasn't really a thing. Well, someone followed up his research in 2020 using Google Books, which claims to have the largest index of full books in the world. The only thing that changed about the results was that now it was George Washington who was second instead of William Shakespeare. Jesus still won by almost double the second place person. He was still far and away the most written about person in history. So you've got to ask, why? It's because he's fascinating. So this morning, I, this may not be a question you ask yourself often, but I just want to know, are you fascinated by Jesus? Does who he is and what he's done grip you? Do you find him unignorable and captivating? Or have you grown too familiar with him that you've, you've lost your fascination? I don't know if you've ever heard, there's a phenomenon called being nose blind. You ever heard this term? What it is, it's what happens when you grow so accustomed to a certain smell that you no longer notice it's there. So think about you first light that, that candle you've got and mm, oh, it smells so good. You're feeling, man, life is good now. I got this nice smell. But you're sitting in the room and after a little while you realize, I don't smell it anymore. Now it's not because the candle doesn't smell the same. It's because your senses have adapted and in a way dulled to the smell. It's kind of faded into the background. But when you leave the room and you come back in, your senses are reawakened and you can smell that beautiful aroma again. So my question is, have you gone nose blind to Jesus? Have the senses of your heart been dulled 
to his beauty? Has he faded into the background so that you don't even notice him? If so, let me invite you to step out of the room, so to speak, and let Luke lead us back in to be fascinated by Jesus all over again. Now, one more thing I want you to notice here in verse 1. Luke says that many have compiled a narrative of what? The things that have been accomplished among us. That word accomplished, or many translations say fulfilled, is a key to understanding what Luke's doing. He's not simply telling us just what happened in Jesus' life. He's telling us how Jesus accomplished or fulfilled God's plan. He's going to show us throughout the book how the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is part of this bigger story of God's eternal plan to glorify himself, install his son as king, and save a people into his kingdom. And to do that, Luke's going to over and over again show how Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament promised. He's saying this wasn't a new phenomenon that burst onto the scene when Jesus got here. He's saying this is part of a bigger story. That's why 40 times in the Luke-Acts combined book, Luke uses this little Greek word, day. We would say D-E-I, which means it was necessary or I must. That's what that word means. So whenever you see that, it's showing that whatever happened is what had to happen according to God's plan. We see it all over Luke. Think about some of these you know. Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is telling us through his choice of words over and over again, like, guys, you don't get it. It, it couldn't have happened any other way. This was the plan from eternity past. Like, this is what the Father has said will happen, and now my life is the accomplishment of the plan. He's showing us that the story of Jesus is fascinating because it's the fulfillment of all the other stories. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Okay, so that's the first thing we see, that it's fascinating. But let's see what else we learn about this story. Look at verse 2. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now this, this point here is crucial. Really important. Luke wants us to see that the story he's telling us is real. It actually took place. There were eyewitnesses who saw these things happen. In fact, one of those eyewitnesses, the Apostle John, he opened his first letter this way. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's saying this wasn't made up. Luke wasn't a creative writer. He didn't go to a workshop and brainstorm ideas and think, what would make a really interesting, compelling story? He's saying, people saw Jesus do these things. 
They heard him say these words. What we need to remember, friends, is that Christianity is rooted in real history. It's not based on religious concepts or ideas. It's based on historical facts. Things that actually happened in real places with real people in real time. Listen to what the old pastor from Liverpool, England, J.C. Ryle, said about this. He said, the first preachers did not go up and down the world proclaiming an elaborate, artificial system of abstruse doctrines and deep principles. They made it their first business to tell men great, plain facts. They went about telling a sin-laden world that the Son of God had come down to earth and lived for us and died for us and risen again. The gospel at its first publication was far more simple than many make it now. It was neither more nor less than the history of Christ. This is so important to keep in mind. One reason is this is why Christianity can't just be a good option for some people and just not really the thing that works for others. Because it's not merely a certain way of living. It's not like an approach to life or a a set of values. Either it's true and real or it's of no use. You cannot keep history and the gospel in different categories. What Luke tells us really happened. It was seen by eyewitnesses. And not only was it seen, it was then delivered, he says, to Luke and his contemporaries. That word delivered is a technical word used for handing down authoritative oral traditions. They didn't always have people who could write these things, and so some of these things were seen and then passed down orally until they got to somebody like Luke who could write them. And it's used, this word for delivered, in key places showing us the level of importance these traditions had. Let me just give you a couple. One, in a little bit, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when we do, you'll often hear me say this, Here's how Paul introduces the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and you know the rest from there. Paul's saying, that's what I delivered to you. The the way you understand the Lord's Supper, I delivered that. Or later in that same book, in 1 Corinthians 15, we get one of the clearest gospel passages in the Bible. And Paul says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That gospel message, Paul says, I delivered that to you. And finally, in Jude 3, Jude writes, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, there is a fixed set body of truth called the faith. And he says that's been delivered to us. We've received it. It's been handed down to us. And Luke's saying that's what we have here. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. This story is real. Someone, asked, someone once asked Edith Schaefer, who is the wife of Francis Schaefer, they, 
They asked her, this was like a skeptic or a, a seeker, if you will. They said, so why should I become a Christian? I wonder why, what you would say to that. They said, why, why should I become a Christian? Edith didn't give a long answer about all the good it would do them or how it would solve that person's problems. Without missing a beat, when they said, why should I become a Christian? She simply said, because it's true. And I just want that to land on you. Like, we're not proposing one alternative among many. It's like, that we have to hold up different religious systems and see which one we think makes the most sense, which one might produce the most good. We're saying, this is reality. It's not something we can choose or leave behind. So why should you become a Christian if you're here and not? My case to you of why you should become a Christian is it's true. It's real. And that's what Luke wants us to see. That the story he's about to tell us in these 24 chapters is true and real. Third, the story is also reliable. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke tells us four things here that help us see that his account is reliable. First, he says he's followed these things. In other words, he didn't just wake up one day to write an account of Jesus, saying, what would make for an interesting topic? I know, I'll go, I'll go down and I'll find out something about Jesus. No, it says he'd been following these things for a while. And we use language similar to this today. We might say to someone, hey, have you been following the events in Gaza? Or are, are you following much with the election right now? Luke's saying, I've been following Jesus and the events of the gospel. I've, I've investigated. I've kept up to date with what's going on. I've, I've asked around. I've paid attention. I, I know what's going on. I followed these things. Second, he followed all things. He wants us to know that his investigation was comprehensive. He made use of all available resources. He left no stone unturned. If there was information out there, I mean, this guy was like an investigative reporter, just seeking out any scrap of information. Third, he followed all things for some time past. That's kind of a wonky translation. More literally, it says he followed all things from the beginning. In other words, he's like, I, I didn't jump in. I went back to where this started. And I followed it from then until now. And fourth, he followed all things closely or carefully. And isn't this what you would expect from a doctor? I mean, he's like a physician examining a patient to observe symptoms and make an accurate diagnosis. You want him using great care, right, to look closely, not just kind of give you a quick look. Oh, yeah, I think it's a broken leg. And you're like, doctor, my head is hurting. Like, you want him to actually take time see what's going on, run every test he needs to. And Luke's saying, I use the greatest care in the same way in my investigation to make sure I get things right, just like a doctor would. Why is he so careful? Because just like a doctor, life depends on it. So Luke is painstaking and thorough in his investigation, examining everything from beginning to end to make sure he gets it right and everything is accurate. 
And then from his investigation, he says, I wrote an orderly account. In other words, he's not just going to blast us with a bunch of random facts or events. This isn't like the life of Jesus mixtape where you're like, I don't know what one thing has to do with the other. He's telling us the story in a way that is well organized and clear for the reader. So my question for us this morning by way of application is, have you investigated Jesus this way for yourself? The one thing I'm confident here is that everyone in the room has thoughts and opinions about who Jesus is. Whether you're a Christian or not, you have some opinion, some thought of like, here's who I know, here's who I think Jesus is. We all have them. The question is, where did they come from? Why do you think that way about Jesus? What are you basing that on? Positively or negatively? Have you carefully considered the accounts of who Jesus is and what he's done? Have you taken the time to dig into the whole story from beginning to end? Have you gone back to the reliable sources of God's word? Luke is going to help us do just that through his accurate, carefully researched, and well-organized account. That's why it's a reliable story. And we can see that being reliable is important to Luke because in verse 4, we see that his purpose in writing this book is confidence. Look at verse 4. He says, That, this is my purpose, this is why I've taken up my pen, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now in verse 3, we saw that Luke is writing to someone named Theophilus. We're not really sure who this is. Um, some people think it's just, Theophilus literally means lover of God. So some people think it's a figurative name. But most people now agree that it's probably a real person. And judging by his title applied here, most excellent, he's probably a high-ranking Roman official who has become a Christian. What Luke tells us here is that this Theophilus has been taught the basics of the Christian faith. That word there, where it says you've been taught, is actually the same word where we get our word catechism from. So Theophilus has been taught and catechized in the foundational truths of the gospel. But Luke wants him and us to have certainty concerning those things to not just know them like like i know that the capital of indiana is indianapolis i know that but like he he wants us to have like a deep and profound sense of like i know that i would go i would die on that hill that's how deeply i know that for the record i would not die if somebody questioned whether indianapolis was the capital that's not a hill i'm gonna die on it is So Luke wants us to see that not only can we know these truths, but we can be certain of them. He wants us to be confident that Jesus really is the fulfillment of God's promises. Confident that he really did come to seek and save the lost. To be confident that his death on the cross paid for all of our sins. Confident that through him we have forgiveness and eternal life Confident that the son who died to save us rose so that we would be free from the power of death and confident that he will come again in great glory with the fullness of his kingdom and we shall live with him forever. 
Friends, Luke has given us a story that's fascinating, that's real, and that's reliable. And the result is a story that you and I can have confidence in, a story we can build our lives upon. So church, as we begin this series in Luke, let's believe this fascinating, real, and reliable story about Jesus we see here. And let's be confident in who he is and what he's done. But let's not stop there. Let's share this story with others so that they too can be certain. After all, it's the greatest story that's ever been told. And it's a true story.